The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Our subject today is Confederate General Daniel Harvey Hill. Related by marriage to Stonewall Jackson, D.H. Hill led troops in action from Big Bethel, Virginia in June 1861 to Bentonville, North Carolina in March of 1865. From Seven Pines to South Mountain, from Antietam to Gettysburg to Chickamauga, he served on both fronts throughout the war. We'll have two guests on our show for this topic today, Doug Batson and expert in the history of D.H. Hill will be with us, but before that, we'll hear from D.H. Hill himself. Join us for a time travel trip today on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the mighty Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the University of North Carolina system. Not the flagship like Chapel Hill or the semi-flagship like North Carolina State, but bringing up, leading the remaining satellite campuses. That's the Pirates of East Carolina University. But I don't speak for ECU. It does not speak for me. It's a show done uh, of my own free will and presenting my ideas. And my guest, likewise, will present his as we talk today about Confederate General D.H. Hill. But before we do that, we'll let you know what's coming up soon on the show. Uh, last week we had a, a, a very interesting discussion with Tony Horwitz, author of Confederates in the Attic, and uh, more recently Midnight Rising about John Brown. That was uh, enlightening for me and uh, hopefully for you if you got to listen. Uh, today it's D.H. Hill. Next week uh, we're joined by Ernest Dollar. He's the director of the City of Raleigh Museum here in North Carolina and uh, a specialist uh, who will be talking about the end of the Civil War in Central North Carolina, something he's uh, looked at and read about and also manages in his new position as uh, director of the City of Raleigh Museum. On March 15th, 
March 22nd, March 29th, no new shows, a three-week hiatus. It's spring break on March 15th, time to kick back, uh, take videos of oneself and one's friends that you'll soon regret uh, with your cell phone, and uh, drink tall drinks with little umbrellas in them, or whatever one does on spring break today. That was maybe 30 years ago. We didn't have the cell phones, though. On March 22nd, the New Haruka 300 conference takes place here at East Carolina University. If you're in the area, come by and learn something about the Tuscarora and their war against the English, the European-style fort that they built in the wilderness to fight against the colonists. Uh, A fascinating, unknown story. Not part of uh, Civil War talk radio, though, and I'll be uh, busy helping to uh, administer that on the 22nd. And March 29th is Good Friday. The university will be closed. So uh, we'll come back on April 5th after uh, next week. Uh, and April 5th will bring us Brian Jordan. Uh, he's talking about the Battle of South Mountain, which we'll be hearing about today. DHL was there. And then we've got uh, on April 12th, Rhonda Cole has written an interesting new book on the 5th Illinois Cavalry a uh, new style of regimental history that uh, looks very promising. On April 19th, Earl Muldering III will join us to talk about New Bedford at war, the whaling town from New England and its involvement in the Civil War. And there will be more shows to follow, but that gives us a little hint of where we're going next. You can find out more about this from, of course, the coolest website on the entire interwebs it's www.impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney tells us what the new shows will be, what the old shows were, provides links to World Talk Radio where the shows are archived and you can hear anything we've done before you can also donate to Civil War Talk Radio through that website, press the PayPal button uh, send $25 if you're so inclined, and I'll be happy to send you a copy of a book of mine. Uh, not one just off my shelf, but one I've actually written. Uh, and uh, that funding goes to support the costs of the website and uh, goes to my voracious book-buying habit. It's not tax-deductible. We're almost at tax time. Don't make that mistake. So uh, donations always welcome. Recent ones... Uh, have been coming in and are much appreciated. Well, today, our topic is uh, D.H. Hill, Daniel Harvey Hill, Confederate General, and uh, through the miracle of the Civil War talk radio time machine, which we used to deploy regularly. I used to use it all the time. Uh, 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 Months, years ago, we haven't broken out in a while. Things have changed, let me say, in Civil War talk radio over the years. Old-time listeners will remember the days when each week started with the uh, sports report, uh, how the Greenville Stars uh, U10 or 12 or 14 uh, youth soccer team was doing. And uh, the people who played on that team, my daughters have grown up some. I no longer coach that team. But it is almost time to start giving you the sports report of the uh, J.H. Rose High School varsity women's soccer team, on which my younger daughter plays. They've got a game tonight, and uh, 
If they win, I'll tell you all about it next week. But the other thing we used to do in Civil War Talk Radio was uh, the time machine and talk to people about what if they could go back. And we got the thing going again. And this time, instead of us going back, it's worked in reverse and sent forward from the era of the Civil War itself, uh, General Daniel Harvey Hill. Uh, General, are you there? Greetings and uh, salutations, Dr. Prokokowicz. From one academic to another, this is Daniel Harvey, or D.H. Hill, not to be confused with that Virginia aristocrat, the other General Hill, Powell Hill. Uh, Well, that's the first question uh, everyone wants to know. Are you two related? There is no relation, and I do not care much for Virginia aristocrats. I have made that plain. Uh, indeed, um, where are you from then, if, if, if uh, not from Virginia? I hail from York County, South Carolina, just south of the border, south of Charlotte, along the Catawba River, where my grandfather set up an ironworks that supplied the Revolutionary Army, the Continental Army, with fine ordnance. Not nearly the shoddy ordinance we receive, at least here in North Carolina, from our arsenals. I am here in North Carolina once again, the third time as departmental commander, and this war is not yet two years old. So you're here in our state. Uh, welcome back to the old North State, but originally from uh, uh, from South Carolina. From uh, South Carolina. With- with military in your blood, did you always decide on a military career? What what led you into uh, into that that line of work? Oh, sir, I was raised in genteel poverty, the youngest of eleven children, and it was out of necessity that my widowed mother, my father, died when I was but four years old, that I secured an appointment to the military academy at West Point when I was still 16. I was a few days shy of my 17th birthday when I arrived there in 1838. Now, we often hear about uh, the academy being the, this, this band of brothers where, where you got to meet uh, many classmates you would later encounter on the battlefield. Have you, have you fought against people you knew from the academy? Indeed, last summer the uh, battles around Richmond at the Gaines Farm. My division went up against, not volunteers, mind you, but the 3rd United States Army, commanded by the Delawarean George Sykes. He was in my class along with uh, James Longstreet, Lafayette McClaws. That was 1842. And I imagine that I'll run into old Rosie, Rosecrans, at one time or another. Well, so uh, so you knew uh, Northerners, you knew some Yankees in the uh, the, the pre-war mm-hmm. era. What? But there's there's a gap between, of course, your your graduation from West Point and the beginning of uh, the, the current conflict, as as you would say. What did you do? Uh, how did you make a living uh, before this war? Uh, like yourself, sir, I was an academic, a professor at, at mathematics first in Lexington, Virginia, at Washington College. We can talk later about my brother-in-law, who 
followed me to Lexington some years later, and I helped him secure an appointment at the Virginia Military Institute across the street. Um, due to my family connections, I married into a well-to-do family, married the eldest daughter of the very Reverend Robert Hall Morrison, the founder of Davidson College. Isabella and I wed after I came back from the Mexican War. I believe I was the first in with General Taylor, and certainly I was the last out out of General Scott's officer cadre, and I was due for a very long leave and was visiting one of my sisters in North Carolina, and they were neighbors with the Morrisons, and Isabella and I were introduced and married later that year in 1849, and I surmised that military life on the frontier would be no life for the Reverend's daughter, so I resigned my commission, went to Lexington, and then there was trouble at Davidson College, a Presbyterian school. The students were rioting, running amok, and the trustees thought that I, being a Mexican War veteran, twice breveted for bravery, that I could bring some order and discipline to the school, and that I did. I dismissed a number of the riotous students, and the trustees were so grateful that they were able to bring an endowment in of $300,000. And in the 1850s, mind you, that was the largest endowment to any Southern institution of higher learning. Well, that is a fascinating. Uh, General Hill, If depending on the outcome of the present war, you it, it sounds like those talents would be welcome here at East Carolina. Uh, not so much the dismissing of riotous students, although downtown on Saturday night, I'm told, having never seen it in person, that there's a certain amount of, of carousing that goes on. Uh, but $300,000 is a lot of money, uh, even from my perspective here in uh, 2013. Uh, so you, you were uh, an academic at Davidson College, uh you mentioned your uh, uh your wife the reverend's daughter is that uh, the connection that you have uh, you said you had a brother-in-law that that I'd heard of uh, who is that uh, what's the connection there ah uh, you must be thinking of tom but now he goes by the sobriquet of stonewall ah uh, yes and well well deserved the bravest finest officer in our army giving much discomfiture to the Yankee foe. Well, tis true, Tom and I met as young lieutenants in Mexico, and I believe it was early 51, the superintendent of the Virginia Military Institute called me into his office and uh, showed me a short list of candidates for vacancy on the faculty, asked me if I could recommend any of these offices, Thomas Jonathan Jackson was on the list, and based on the strength of his character alone, I recommended Tom. But you know, I almost regretted it because he proved to be a most unsatisfactory instructor. I had to give him much tutoring in our parlor. And on one of those occasions, Isabella's younger sister, Mary Anna, came up from Carolina for a visit, and she and Tom met. Now, of course, they were destined to be husband and wife, but oh, oh, not yet, because at the time, at the time, Tom, you see, was engaged to Ellie Junkin, the daughter of my boss, the 
president of Washington College. Well, those two did wed, but of course, they were with child in their first year, and Ellie died in childbirth, and the child also died, and that was a very cruel blow, even for a man of great Christian faith as Tom. So, friends, and myself included, we suggested that Tom take that trip to Europe that he had always talked about to have a change of scenery, if you will. And he did just that in 1856, and when he returned, the first thing he did was to see my father-in-law and ask for the hand of young Mary Anna. So the two of you now are related. Uh, when the war broke out, or when you sensed war was about to break out, uh, what were you doing then, and, and how did you respond to the news of secession? I heard uh, earlier on this uh, device about John Brown. Well, Governor Ellis of North Carolina and a number of prominent citizens were very concerned about servile insurrection. And owing to the fact that I had brought great discipline to Davidson College and made a name for myself, Governor Ellis appointed me as the founding superintendent of the North Carolina Military Institute in Charlotte which coincidentally opened its doors in October of 1859, just weeks before the John Brown raid, mind you. Well, when South Carolina seceded, just over a year later, being a South Carolinian myself, a number of cadets came to me who were South Carolinians and asked what they should do. Should they go home and join the South Carolina uh, armed forces or militia, and I suggested, oh no, if war comes, it will be all-consuming and we'll all have too much of it. You just wait and see. And of course, in North Carolina, we waited until April when that miscreant Abraham Lincoln decided to blockade our ports and then calling for 75,000 volunteers to put down the rebellion in the cotton states. Well, of course, such inflammatory actions prompted both North Carolina, Virginia, and the other states of the Upper South to secede. And it was my cadets and a faculty of four who set up Camp Ellis in Raleigh to receive the thousands of young strapping North Carolinians who were enlisting in the Army to defend our rights against the Yankee invader. So, clearly you were going to be thrown into action soon. Um, General, I'm sorry to report that the, the connection is fading. It sounds like you're slipping back into the past. Um, we're going to have to take a break on our show here. Uh, but if you should cross paths with Mr. Batson, please tell him to stand by, and we'll, we'll talk with him shortly. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break and come back with more of Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market 
step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Uh, I'll be joined today by Doug Batson. He's an expert in the history of General D.H. Hill and uh, presents the general's story in first person. Uh, we heard from General Hill himself in our first segment, quite a fascinating uh, technological accomplishment here at uh, Civil War Talk Radio headquarters to be able to do that. Uh, it would be nice if we could do it regularly, but uh, but we shall see. In any case, uh, let's uh, continue and, and see if we can talk with uh, Mr. Batson. Mr. Batson, are you there? Yes, Jerry, I am. I am uh, Doug Batson, and I am looking forward to traveling to eastern North Carolina next week to begin uh, a tour as the living historian portraying Daniel Harvey Hill for the sesquicentennial of Hill's actions, trying to dislodge the Federals from their garrison at New Bern and Washington. Well, that's that's right down the road from us here in Greenville. So, uh we had the, the great advantage of hearing from General Hill in the first segment, and I'll have a, a question or two for you about that. But let me start just by uh, uh, asking about what about exactly what you do, I suppose would be the way to put it. You, you give first-person presentations. You appear as, uh, as General Hill uh, in appearance and in voice. Uh, you're going to be doing that here in eastern North Carolina uh, starting shortly uh, next week, first week of March 2013. Is this something you do full-time? Well, I wish there were as much demand for a D.H. Hill impersonator as there are for others in the pantheon of Confederate generals, Jerry. There would be plenty of bookings for um, General Lee and Jackson and Longstreet and probably Jeb Stewart, but not for the much maligned and misunderstood Daniel Harvey Hill, I'm afraid. I have to uh, ferret them out on uh, a few weekends uh, a month uh, on my own, strictly as a volunteer. Well, that brings up the first question. Why did you choose D.H. Hill to present? Oh, Jerry, as you heard from the general himself, he is uh, 
quite a, a colorful character, and I think he was very tame in the interview with you. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't hear any of his uh, sarcastic wit and his sharp tongue or any of his um, croaking about the remote chances the Confederacy has to uh, gain its independence. So it is said of D.H. Hill that he offended many and conciliated few. So uh, I, I guess that would make for an interesting show. What? How did you come across, I, I mean, what was the process? One day you wake up and say, I think I'm going to do D.H. Hill presentations. Uh, well, it was almost like that, Jerry. Um, I had been a avid student of the Civil War going on uh, historical tours and attending seminars. And with the approaching sesquicentennial, I said, you know, I have seen some first-person impressions, and I like them a lot. I think I would like to do one, and I need to find out which character would suit me. So I went to the uh, American Living History Education Society in Gettysburg, which spans all of American military history, and asked the same question. How does one become a living historian, and what do you have to do to get started? So I found out that as a man of uh, letters and languages and a religious author and educator, I had a lot in common with D.H. Hill. And plus, he's a very colorful and interesting persona to portray. He dared to criticize General Robert E. Lee and was drummed out of the Army of Northern Virginia. And that happened following Chickamauga when he was a corps commander in the Army of Tennessee. And he was in the Confederate doghouse for over 15 months. And Jefferson Davis just assumed that D.H. Hill was the ringleader of the uh, officers who had signed a petition asking for his friend Bragg's removal after the hollow victory at Chickamauga. So D.H. Hill was on the outs. It didn't help him that he was the addressee of Special Order 191, or the Lost Dispatch. So he was blamed for General Lee's setbacks there because the Lost Order had his name on it. So that was during the, the Antietam campaign when Lee's order that explained where the whole army was going to be uh, when that copy got mislaid and then uh, obtained by the Federals. It certainly changed the nature of that campaign, gave McCall mm -hmm. all this secret information. So Hill takes a little bit of the fall for that since it was his copy. That's interesting. Did uh, So uh, you said at the beginning of that, that uh, statement that there is a uh, an institution in Gettysburg uh, mm -hmm. uh, that, that deals with first-person presentations. What I'd never heard of that. Tell me, where, how did you find out about it? Well, Gettysburg is only 90 minutes from where I live in northern Virginia, so I'm up there a lot and ran into some of these costume-living historians. So I asked, how did you get started? And most of them were either members of Lee's lieutenants, which is probably the foremost name in uh, at least Confederate historians where all of Lee's uh, staffs are, and subordinate officers are impersonated by uh, a living historian, with the exception of D.H. Hill, of course. And then the American Living History Education Society 
has uh, Revolutionary, War of 1812, Civil War, World War One, World War Two impersonators, and they do uh, events um, in the Middle Atlantic states. And with the Civil War sesquicentennial, there's uh, no shortage of such events. And even D.H. Hill, who had a busy year in 1862, I uh, was busy last year portraying him, and now he is left the Army of Northern Virginia and is once again departmental commander of North Carolina in Goldsboro. So you're actually able to track sort of where, where your man was 150 years ago and, and, and do presentations reflecting local sesquicentennial observations. That, Absolutely. That's... Just uh, 30 miles from where I live, D.H. Hill was departmental commander in Leesburg, Virginia, facing uh, his old messmate from uh, the Mexican War, George Stone, across the river in Maryland. And on one of the, on the grounds of one of the period plantations, Oatlands, on the old Carolina Road, we did a uh, first-person presentation of D.H. Hill leading his 3,000 troops southward on the Confederate retreat from northern Virginia. And I was in Richmond last summer for the seven days. I was at the Monocacy uh, Battlefield Park when the original copy of the found lost order was on display there so i portrayed dh hill there with the national park service and then of course at sharpsburg i um was under the big tent and had a large audience of three or four hundred to explain dh hill's role in the bloody lane well i want to ask you about reactions to what you do and, and preface that by saying uh Maybe it must have been what twenty years ago, uh, not quite that long, but but sometime back, there was a reenactment of the Lincoln Douglas debates in which uh, C-SPAN hired a Lincoln and a Douglas presenter to go to the original sites across Illinois and and reenact the debates, and each town put on the the show as they wanted to. And there was a lot of skepticism at first, uh, certainly in the Lincoln community. There, there were certainly historians who thought this was a hokey thing to do, but it proved extremely successful. It mm -hmm. got a lot of attention for the uh, for the debates, reminded people about them, and people went to hear the reenactments. And it, as educational events, I thought they were were extremely successful. So my question to you is: First, do you do you ever get? Uh, a negative reaction from uh, Civil War historians or enthusiasts who think this is a hokey thing to be doing? Uh, and, and secondly, and I, I can predict the answer to this, uh, what do you think about what you're doing? Well, I'll answer the second question first, Jerry. As I mentioned, sure. I had seen some living uh, history presentations myself, and I thought this is something that I could do um, with General D.H. Hill. He was a prolific writer. He wrote an algebra textbook and two treatises on the Christian faith, one of which was prized by Queen Victoria in her personal library. Again, a man of literature and languages. And unabashed in um, what he said and who he said it to. And he criticized the Confederate Congress, his army commanders, President Davis, 
He was a, a acerbic personality and an irascible character, uh, very enjoyable to play. Now, remind me what the uh, first. Of the so, two what kind of reaction was. do you, do you do you ever get people who say, "Oh, this is this is corny. This is this is uh, a hokey way to present Civil War history." No, not at all. In fact, um, it's a it's a great way to engage uh, younger people in history, as opposed to going to a, a lecture from behind the podium. And before um, uh, I'm scheduled to talk at a Civil War um, living history camp, for example, I'll walk around and insult uh, young men and ask them why they're not in uniform and <laughs> call them a skulker. And that way I'll invite them to my, uh, uh, to my talk 30 or 60 minutes later. Or I'll call them a deserter, tell them that they need to be in the ranks. Ask them if they've ever considered a military education and give them my calling card for the North Carolina Military Institute. So it's very engaging. And then for the pure enthusiast of the Civil War, I get a lot of compliments for not um, falling in lock, stock, and barrel with deifying General Lee. In my talks, I say I'd rather serve under General Johnston. And General Lee bumbled his way through the battles around Richmond, the Seven Days, Malvern Hill. It was not war. It was murder. Sharpsburg. This battle needn't be fought at all. I was aghast after South Mountain that my division was posted on the high ground behind Antietam Creek, ostensibly to cover the retreat of the army against a foe two and a half si uh, times our size. And then without being directed to entrench ourselves, we unexpectedly had to make a fight there and lost 11,000 men, men that cannot be replaced. And for that reason, we will lose this war. That's croaking, and D.H. Hill did a lot of it. So for those who are purists, let's say, they find it refreshing that not everyone deifies um, General Lee that, and that he was infallible. Uh, and and coming from a a Confederate point of view, as opposed to Alan Nolan criticizing Lee for 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 other reasons, uh, this is coming from within the Confederate camp. That's that's quite interesting. Now, as you were speaking there, you you know slipped in and out of first person. Um, do you ever? I don't mean this facetiously or I actually get yeah I mean it entirely facetiously do you ever wake up and and you know wonder which character you are uh, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet that's Perhaps good <laughs> I uh, have uh, too infrequent of an occasion to portray general hill uh, well let me ask a, a question related to that about about acting uh, presenting history in first person i had uh, recently a theater professor here at East Carolina, uh, and I got to talking, and we began talking about the idea of teaching as theater, which I certainly believe it is. You're certainly presenting to the students not just information, but doing it in a certain way. And yet, college instructors get no, not only no theatrical training, but no training in, in presentation and how to lecture, how to modulate their voices or or. or be, project or have a stage presence or do anything to make their presentation more accessible to an audience. 
do you have any theater training, or have you thought about that, or is this something that just came to you? It just came to me not three years ago. I, I have no theater training, but I am a fan of theater, and I have been to hundreds of performances in my adult life, and I'll mention one at Ford's Theater in Washington because it has to do with the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates. For the bicentennial of Abraham Lincoln's birth, Ford's Theater was um, revamped, and they had original plays about Lincoln, and one of them was the Lincoln-Douglas debates told through the view of Mrs. Douglas. So huh. there were only three actors on stage the entire performance in Ford's Theater, and I just thought that was fascinating. Well, it, it, there is something about the the first person delivery for for communicating mm -hmm. uh, historical stories, and uh, uh, certainly in the public history community, there's a lot of uh, discussion and research about how to how best to do this. One one reason why every museum doesn't do it, because uh, when I teach my students about it, they all say, "Well, if I ever work in a museum, we'll do all first person." Um, one reason they don't is, is it's very expensive. Uh, uh, certainly any of our listeners who do reenacting know the, the uniform doesn't come cheap. Uh, is it expensive for you to outfit yourself to, to be D.H. Hill? Um, yes, the initial cost is um, considerable. I'll, I'll say between 600 and $1,000 minimum. Um, for females, it, it's more so. But so I'm able it, to um, keep that basic issue of um, two coats and a vest and several poplin shirts and boots, some brogan shoes and one felt hat. I have a, a reproduction 36 caliber pistol, and that serves me well. Hill was not a clothes horse. He was not a Jeb Stewart. Oh, no, Hill didn't think too much of Calvary, stating that he never saw dead Confederate soldiers with spurs on. Well, Meaning, meaning that they always skedaddled before a battle. <laughs> well, we're going to take another short break. I want to come back and ask you about where, where you get your, your, uh, your information, about how you do your research. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Right now we're going to take a short break, talking today with Doug Batson. Doug Batson is General D.H. Hill. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. 
Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Doug Batson. He's a first-person presenter of Confederate General D.H. Hill, a a figure well-known to people listening to this show, certainly, but not so well-known to the general public, not on the lines of uh, Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson, uh, but one whose story is nonetheless fascinating, and we talked a little bit, we talked in our first uh, section today with General Hill himself and got uh, some of his background story from the horse's mouth. And then talking with Doug Batson in our second section, we learned a little bit about how one gets started doing Civil War uh, pre- presenting, first person presenting, uh, and, and why, uh, and, and, and about some of the remarkable Character traits of D. H. Hill that make him such an interesting person to reenact to uh, to present. Um, so, Doug, let me ask you, uh, as I started to do at the end of our last segment, about sources. How how did you go about researching D. H. Hill? Jerry, again with D. H. Hill, it's a lot easier than other more prominent um, military figures, especially Confederate generals. Again, my living history club in Gettysburg which, by the way, this weekend is uh, hosting a seminar, I believe it's tomorrow, on how to become a living historian. I asked them how, the veterans that is, how did you gather your resources? And fortunately, uh, D.H. Hill was a prolific writer. He left a lot of letters to his wife. I have been to the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and was able to access the originals and handle these 150-year-old fading yellow sheets that he wrote to his wife. Uh, He kept a diary during the Mexican War that's published as a fighter from way back, and that teaches me a lot about his uh, very acerbic personality, his dislike of uh, strong central government, his family's Whig political sentiment, uh, total disdain for volunteer generals like Gideon Pillow in the Mexican War and what he called mushroom generals, those with political connections, sprinkle a little water on them, and then overnight you have a brigadier general. Um, there's only one wartime biography on D.H. Hill, and that was written over 50 years ago by Hal Bridges. Lee's Maverick General is the title. It offers a lot of quotes from Hill and a lot of correspondence to his wife, Isabella, and I make a conscious effort to lift these phrases, especially the more colorful ones, and weave them into my presentations. So I spend a good 10 to 15 hours crafting a script 
that runs for 30 minutes, let's say, on D.H. Hill in the Confederate retreat from Northern Virginia in the Seven Days Battle, the uh, South Mountain, Lost Order 191, D.H. Hill in Sharpsburg. I did a special one for Port Royal, Virginia, which is 20 miles east of Fredericksburg, where D.H. Hill was on the far right of General Lee's army facing Burnside at, at Fredericksburg. And I have a new one to unveil next weekend in North Carolina, D.H. Hill in North Carolina, 1863, subtitled, I Won't Submit to the Swindle, meaning that General Lee wanted to take his best brigades away so Lee could invade Pennsylvania with all available forces leaving Hill to defend a line from Wilmington, North Carolina, to Petersburg, Virginia, along the Weldon Railroad with two brigades. Hmm. That's a, a very long line, hundreds of miles we're talking about. Uh, well, so when you do your presentations, do you... Uh, one thing I, I've always seen this happen when, when involved with Lincoln presenters is there's always people in the audience who want to uh, trip up the, the presenter. Do you get people asking you, you know, for a cell phone number or, or ask, you know, doing things to try to bring you into the present? Uh, I have seen that done to other living historians. Uh, fortunately, I have been spared uh, <laughs> from that. Um, Often I'm asked, where is my red shirt, my calico shirt? And, of course, they're thinking AP Hill, and that gives me a chance to uh, take the offensive and uh, blister them for their ignorance in character. <laughs> There's a real advantage, I can see, in having some of D.H. Hill's, uh, as you say, acerbic quality uh, mm -hmm. uh, in that you can go ahead and tell people what you think of their foolish questions without leaving character and, and, or, right. and without being insulting since you're, mm -hmm. you're in the role. Now, you mentioned he doesn't, uh, he, D.H. Hill, didn't like A.P. Hill, uh, didn't think that Lee walked on water, uh, certainly didn't get along with Bragg, but nobody did. Uh, what, was there anyone he did get along with? Uh, did Stonewall Jackson, for example? Well, of course he got along with his brother-in-law, and there was um, no ill will between the, the two General Hills. Um, they respected each other. Uh, Lafayette McClaws was uh, a classmate of his. They got along well. Um, Richard Heron Anderson, also a classmate, 1842 West Point. Both South Carolinians, um, they got along well. Um, John Breckenridge served as a division commander under D.H. Hill at Chickamauga, and they got along splendidly. In hmm. fact, the following year after Cold Harbor, um, Breckenridge was recalled to the valley to check uh, Hunter's raid on Lynchburg, and D.H. Hill, without a command, was hanging around Richmond waiting for one, and Breckinridge asked Hill to come with him as a volunteer general. Breckinridge was thrown from his horse, was unable to supervise constructions of the uh, inner defensive wall around Lynchburg, so D.H. Hill did so as a West Point trained engineer officer as a volunteer. Uh, 
when General Early arrived with one corps of the Army of Northern Virginia and they were able to expand the earthworks, Early, who had served under Hill in 1862, telegraphed the War Department in Richmond that they have General Hunter on the run. They want to pursue him into the valley. General Hill is here. Can I give him a division? And the response came back from Secretary Seddon and President Davis, we'll send you another general. Hmm. So, so was this due to politics? That, uh... due, due to politics, first that Davis was convinced that it was D.H. Hill who was the ringleader of the malcontent officers in the Army of Tennessee who had circulated the petition asking for uh, Braxton Bragg's removal. And then Hill and Jefferson Davis got into a war of words, and uh, Hill called the president uh, an odious and petty man. Well, there you go. That's... (laughs) That's not going to get you the promotion. Uh, No, it's not going to get you the promotion. And speaking of promotion, Hill was appointed a lieutenant general. But after this incident, his confirmation had not yet been granted by the Confederate Senate, and it never came. So he was was denied promotion. Indeed. So he would have been joined at this high rank lieutenant general. What was D.H. Hill's best moment uh, in in the war? What was the highlight, high point of his military career, in your judgment? Oh, I think without question, Jerry, and you'll have this uh, saga, I hope, um, casting D.H. Hill in the most favorable light at South Mountain, whereas the commander of the rear guard, 5,000 men, He held off two federal corps of over 30,000 for six hours, totally unaided, by shrewdly moving his forces around and having them appear to be in greater numbers than they were, while behind him, parked in Boonesboro, three or four miles behind the mountain, was the entire reserve artillery and the trains of the Army of Northern Virginia, So if those Federals had been able to brush aside D.H. Hill's five brigades, the game would have been over. The entire reserve artillery and the trains for the Army would have been captured. The uh, fall of Harper's Ferry would have never happened. So He went on from there, uh, of course, fighting in the the bloody lane at, at... Antietam, and ends up the war in North Carolina, uh, where where you are now for your your presentation, uh, with uh, Joe Johnston again. How how did the how did Harvey Hill's war come to an end? Uh, well, that's another high ranking officer that Hill did get along with, and he openly professed that he preferred serving to Joe Johnson as opposed to R.E. Lee. So once um, General Sherman entered his home state of South Carolina, he could not stay home any longer and found a position as a departmental commander outside of Augusta, Georgia, 
and when Joe Johnson consolidated all the remaining forces, he did have a division and fought very well at Bentonville. So on the 26th of April, 1865, at Durham Station, D.H. Hill surrendered what was left of a division to General Sherman, coincidentally, four years to the day after he and his cadets and faculty from the North Carolina Military Institute had arrived at that same station to set up Camp Ellis and train the first North Carolina volunteers. Wow. So we'll be talking uh, next week about the end of the war in central North Carolina, and, and there's where it happens. The, the, uh, what happened to him after the war? Well, while D.H. Hill's star faded during the war, in the 12-year Reconstruction, it shined rather brightly. Hill could understand military defeat for the South with a foe three times its size and much better armed and with a Navy. But he believed that political change was still possible, so he worked tirelessly as an editor in a newspaper, uh, an editor of a magazine in a newspaper, The Land We Love and Our Southern Home, which kept Southern literature and culture alive during the occupation years of Reconstruction. And D.H. Hill could also be credited for starting the literature of the lost cause, because in the late 1860s, when no one wanted to write about the Civil War, it being so recent and so painful, Hill invited generals such as Beauregard and others to recount their war stories 15 years before it became popular with battles and leaders in the Civil War. And I believe Hill had an agenda for this. It was to clear his name from wrongdoing at Chickamauga and, again, with the, uh, the lost order, the lost dispatch. So, Finally, so, oh, D.H. Hill became president of the University of Arkansas and served there until the 1880s, and he contracted uh, stomach cancer and succumbed to that in 1889. I'm often asked, Jerry, um, is the library at North Carolina State named for D.H. Hill? It is the D.H. Hill Library, but actually it's named for D.H. Hill, Jr., who followed his father's footsteps into the world of academia and was president of NC State a century ago. Hmm. That, now, that's something I did not know. Next time I'm in Raleigh, I'll go. Be aware, that's a different D.H. Hill, the second. Uh, so, very interesting that, that he is, as you say, responsible to some extent for uh, giving voice to the lost cause uh, view of the Civil War, to, to uh, getting generals and veterans to talk, perhaps before many of them were ready to do so, and to... Uh, vindicate the cause politically. But I find it interesting you say it's motivated by a desire to clear his own record from, from accusations about, uh, from his opponents Bragg at Chickamauga. Yeah, but, uh, uh, I, I would suggest to political that the, vind the, the vindication was more for his personal honor than it was mm -hmm. for the lost cause in the late 1860s. 
We see the lost cause on a national scale becoming uh, much bigger 20 years after that. But, but Absolute, absolutely. Well, uh, tell uh, our listeners again where precisely you're going to be uh, next week, uh, uh, what days and what places. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. I'd like to do that. I will be next weekend at a Civil War event in New Bern at Tryon Palace, the North Carolina History Center. Um, giving a first-person impression of D.H. Hill in 1862 on Saturday the 9th, 11 o'clock, and on Sunday the 10th at 2 o'clock, my wife will tag-team with me as Isabella Hill, and through uh, actual correspondence of General D.H. Hill, will tell the story of what occurred 150 years ago when General Hill was departmental commander in North Carolina, and weave in the death of Stonewall Jackson. And we'll repeat that in Washington at the North Carolina Estuarium on Tuesday the 12th at 7 o'clock, and repeat it once more in Goldsboro on Thursday the 14th at the Wayne County Museum again at 7 o'clock. I have a website. It's easy to remember, dhhill.org. It has my speaking schedule and uh, more resources about the life of D.H. Hill there on the webpage. Well, Doug, thank you so much for uh, sharing that with us and for uh, giving us this insight into the life of D.H. Hill, and uh, good luck with your presentations. Thank you, Jerry. I hope the D.H. Hill T-shirt fits you. I, I wasn't going to tell the listeners I was bribed with a T-shirt. It's great. I'm wearing it now. Uh, <laughs> Doug, thank you for that. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management